Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Amber Schultz, filling in for Shami. This week in the news, we've seen the UK Parliament shut down by newly elected PM Boris Johnson, Johnson and Chinese and Hong Kong students continuing to clash in universities around Australia. But, as always, we're going to be giving you the news you might not have heard on your airwaves this week. First up, we have Irina Borogon and Andrei Soldatov in the studio to discuss their independent investigative journalism into the Kremlin's efforts to control the Russian internet. And after that, we'll be speaking to Dr Elise Methven, a law lecturer at UTS, about a new drug homicide crime rushed through the New South Wales government. And as always, we want to hear from you. What do you think of the New South Wales government's approach to drug use at music festivals? Text us in on 0409945945 or tweet us at FBI. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks. Colin. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Free-flowing information on the internet is often seen as tantamount to a functioning democracy. But what happens when a state tries to step in and stem this flow of information, controlling what the public can access? China has implemented a centralised internet, meaning social media sites such as Facebook and Twitter are disabled across the state, with events effectively erased online. And now Russia is looking to do the same. We're joined in the studio by independent investigative journalists Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogan from Russia who have spent years investigating how the Kremlin watches over its citizens and its attempts to control what they see. Andrei and Irina, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having us. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having us here. Our absolute pleasure. So to begin, tell us a bit about your research into Russian surveillance. Uh, what exactly is the Russian search and surveillance system? Well, uh, the thing is that we uh, have been investigating the Russian security services for almost 20 years, uh, starting in 1999, actually. And uh, for years, it was about offline methods of control of, uh, of the Russian people. But uh, in the mid of the thousands, it was quite clear that the Kremlin is going to uh, think about how to control the online community. And especially after 2011-2012, when we got the Moscow protests against Vladimir Putin, uh, everybody got excited about the Internet and social media. You remember the Arab Spring. And the Kremlin got really scared by what they saw on Facebook and Twitter, and they decided that that posed a big threat for the political stability to the country. And they started implementing lots of things to control people on social media, from surveillance to uh, filtering, censorship, all kinds of things. And speaking of threats and risks, you two must have faced some dangers while reporting on this. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the repercussions and how the Russian government reacted to some of your publications? Uh, you know, uh, every independent journalist are uh, in uh, some kind of danger in Russia, not only us. Um, and we faced uh, this danger from the Russian government many times, but uh, the... I don't know, uh, the most terrifying case was uh, when we investigated and published our investigation on uh, secret bunkers of the Russian uh, of the Russian uh, security service, and uh, 
they published a map where they designated all these places across Moscow. And uh, the Russian security services, the FSB, uh, conducted an investigation against us, and we were interrogated in the prison building where a lot of dissidents uh, were interrogated during the uh, during the se- back into the 70s and 80s when it was uh, the Soviet Union and it was really unpleasant experience. Fortunately, uh, uh, they got away with that. Uh, they stopped investigation and uh, we're still free. <laughs> so that's happened. So what is the Kremlin's main argument for wanting a centralized internet? Uh, we believe that um, most of the protests in Russia and most of uh, opposition uh, activities is directed somehow from the West. And uh, we have this conspiracy theory that uh, the U.S. State Department uh, had been uh, trying to find a way how to uh, overthrow political regimes in country like Russia. Uh, so it goes for China, Russia, Central Asia, and uh, because in countries like Russia, there is no uh, traditional means of uh, mobilizing people to go to streets like trade unions, independent trade unions, or big opposition parties, uh, the idea of the Kremlin was that the U.S. State Department tries to find a way how to get people to the streets, but not using trade unions or political parties. And by 2011, 2012, they came to think that this method, this means, is uh, social media. You can get people mobilized very quickly. For that, you don't need any offline political organization. And because uh, we use social media mostly developed in the West and mostly in the U.S., they immediately made this connection. So Facebook and Twitter for them is just a tool of U.S. State Department. And they still believe in that. Uh, so the idea of the, go- of the Russian government was and is uh, so-called digital sovereignty. Uh, the idea is that to force Russian people to use uh, domestically uh, uh, developed social media or to lend foreign media, uh, foreign social media on the Russian soil, for instance, to uh, force uh, Facebook, Google, and Twitter to relocate, to move their servers with uh, the data of Russian citizens to Russia. So far, it was not un- very successful, but they are trying and trying and trying. And how would controlling this flow of information or how would controlling social media affect journalism in the state? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, journalism are a little bit f- uh, far from the social media media, because uh, Putin started controlling journal- journalists uh, much earlier than he uh, put his hand on the internet, and he put uh, the most uh, the most media in the country under control in the early 2000s when he came to power, and after that, only. T- 10 or 12 years uh, later he came uh, he came to the uh, he came after the internet and um, of course as journalists we use uh, social media extensively and we should be aware because there are a lot of repressive legislation on the internet and on the social media in the country we have to be very cautious expressing our opinion on the internet because if you are independent journalist and you criticize uh, criticizing the Kremlin and the Kremlin's policy, or even uh, even any uh, any kind of government policy in the country, uh, say governor or governor's policy, you could be labeled as extremist and you could be prosecuted. 
So fake news is now a huge problem we've seen, especially after the US elections. Do you think a centralized internet could combat fake news? Uh, no, I don't think so. And actually, uh, the Kremlin found a way to uh, use uh, fake news in the country, not only outside the country, for instance, in Europe or in the United States, but also uh, in Russia. Uh, actually, uh, they started using these uh, tactics of uh, fake news, uh, firstly in the country, attacking uh, independent journalists or independent politicians with all kind of uh, crazy news about their private lives. And they, from, in many cases, they used um, security services. So you have security services uh, gathering well, some nasty information about people, private calls, uh, all kinds of things, then leaked this information to programming media, and they published all kind of uh, stuff, made-up stuff about these people. And uh, we got that uh, at the height of the protest, for instance, in 2011-2012, or this summer, um, every time we have some kind of political crisis. So actually, uh, the Kremlin is in a very dubious situation. They love to control and centralize everything, but they also want to use social media to promote their agenda. So in the wake of Cambridge Analytica, how do you think whistleblowers should be protected? Well, I think that, um, well, in our country, uh, what is absolutely clear that uh, whistleblower cannot exist without strong media. For instance, uh, some years ago, some um, disenchanted officers of uh, agents of uh, the Russian security services, they launched a website and uh, with some information, uh, some documents, uh, leaked from the FSB, the Russian main security service. And this website existed only for two weeks. And nobody noticed it because the media ignored this website. And website was shut down by the government and uh, these documents are completely lost to us. So the Russian security services agents who wanted to... Um, to make some sort of effort to make these things public. Uh, they, go, they go public, right? They launched this website, they tried to publicize these things, and they tried to, in a way, to create a kind of uh, uh, Wikileaks, uh, the Russian version, but it was completely unsuccessful because of lack of strong media. So the first thing you need to do and to be to, to care of is uh, strong independent media in your country. Absolutely. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM. It's Swatha Das and Amber Schultz. We're speaking with in independent investigative journalists Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogon about Russia's push to control the internet. Now, Andrei, your father helped establish the first ever internet connection in Russia. Did this influence your decision to undertake the work that you do? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, maybe in a way, because when I joined my very first newspaper in 1996, uh, my first subject was to write about the Russian uh, information technologies. And I started writing about the Internet back then in 1996. And, but my, my father was not extremely happy. Uh, with me because, um, well, sometimes I wrote some stuff which was uh, very critical of uh, his friends or his company. So it was uh, not always really, uh, really easy to me or for him. Um, but um, later, of course, it was uh, really interesting to see what happened with this first generation of people who brought uh, the Internet to the country. And it was really sad to see that many of these people 
uh, were forced out of business or government uh, position to make decisions about the future of the, of the Internet right now, because right now the Kremlin is not that interested in developing of technologies. They're interested in controlling them. And so we've been talking about the importance of whistleblowers and a, and a strong independent media in, in every country. Uh, Australia, we recently saw media raids by the Australian Federal Police at our national broadcaster, the ABC, which was targeting whistleblowers. Do you think fresh freedom is better in the West, or have we been deluded into thinking that it is? Uh, of course it's better. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. fact. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I've heard about the story uh, when a journalist and uh, when a journalist was, uh, a house of journalists was searched uh, because she published a story. Uh, about uh, analog of NSA here in Australia. I, 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 didn't, I, I don't remember the name of the security services uh, the story was published about. Uh, electronic intelligence service electronic intelligence uh, of Signal Australia. service of Australia. You probably so, know better than us. <laughs> so this is a service uh, that have to uh, intercept uh, electronic communications in the country. And mm -hmm. before, uh, um, before that moment... Uh, uh, before the um, before that moment, they intercepted uh, only uh, they 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 had a right inter uh, to conduct interception only with uh, warrant from the court, and the journalist uh, uh, investigated that they st uh, they consider a possibility to intercept to uh, to do intercept without any warrant and published and published all, all the stuff. And her uh, house and uh, and also an editorial office was searched for I don't know for for something, uh, and it's very familiar story. It, it's the same what happened with us many years ago in Moscow. Our because of because we published some sensitive investigation, our editorial office was searched. Our our laptops, our computers were uh, was deprived of us, and I don't know they were imprisoned into the Lefortovo prison, and uh, it. It is so sad to hear that some, uh, but we are the country which have a long tradition of totalitarianism, and it's not easy to to uh, to to leave behind all these traditions. But here, <laughs> you should not uh, you shouldn't go this way. It's a pity. Yeah. You shouldn't do this. Mm. You know, despite the incredibly strict mm. control that the Russian government has over the online space, blogging communities and journalists like yourself still find the space to criticize their aims and support contrarian movements. How do you do it? How do you get away with it? Uh, well, you know, these days, especially after 2016 scandal with uh, the Russian meddling in the U.S. election, we sort of came to think of the Internet in terms of threats. Uh, so we think that, first of all, the Internet, well, we have lots of dangerous stuff on the Internet and we should think how to counter these kind of uh, problems uh, ranging from uh, propaganda of terrorism to uh, disinformation and fake news. But first of all, the Internet is about connecting people and it's a great thing. And uh, actually, it helps us to get our stories published. And when we cannot publish our investigative stories, in Russia, we published them in the West, and how we use the Internet. Mm -hmm. All of our books were published in, in first in the West, and in, in the US and UK. And only after that, we were translated back into Russian and published in Russia, which is a very crazy thing to get to your audience, but nevertheless, it works for us. Mm -hmm. And when we had, for instance, a very big and very sensitive story about um, the Sochi Olympics and uh, uh, surveillance equipment installed in Sochi for the Olympic Games, 
and it was very extensive and very totalitarian system of uh, control of uh, visitors and outlets. And uh, we published this story in The Guardian, and the Russian public found this information and read this information because of the Internet, because the story was translated into Russian and published on online. So it's still, we just need to remember that the Internet is about many good things, not only some bad things. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think that's really important to remember. Just as our last question, how much faith do you have in encryption? Oh, it's a great thing. <laughs> it's a great thing, yes. <laughs> we use it all the time. Yeah, fair. Okay, yeah, yeah. awesome. <laughs> well, so that's much. a tick for encryption. Mm -hmm. um, we just want to thank you so much for chatting to us today. Uh, thank you for having us thank again. Thank you, thank you. That was independent investigative journalists Irina Borogan and Andrei Soldatov discussing the Kremlin's war on the internet. You can catch Irina and Andrei's talks tomorrow at the Antidote Festival. Andrei is in conversation with Chris Wiley, Cambridge analytical whistleblower, on a panel called Dark Data. And Irina is on a panel called My Crime is Journalism, an event talking about freedom of the press we'll tweet a link out for you guys to get tickets that's right stay tuned because we'll be moving along to our next interview with dr elise methvin discussing a new drug homicide crime and its unintended repercussions but for now here's hey you by dope lemon the australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons or is the australian taxpayer paying for those as well back chat your alternative to talk back in the wake of an increase in accidental deaths by drug overdose, new laws by the New South Wales government may see people who sell illicit drugs be persecuted for uh, be prosecuted for homicide if the person who uses the drug dies as a result. Now, the laws come after statistics show that deaths by overdose have overtaken the numbers of deaths by road accidents, prompting what has been described as a knee-jerk reaction by the Australian government. Dr Elise Methvin is a lecturer in law and a UTS Early Career Research Fellow and is here this morning to discuss these new laws. Hi, Elise. Hi. Um, so, can you explain these new laws to us? Yeah, so basically they were introduced in November in response to two drug-related deaths at the DEFCON 1 music festival, uh, introduced by the New South Wales government, Premier Ber uh, Gladys Berejiklian, in relation to those deaths. And the idea is that if someone supplies a drug and that drug is self-administered by another person and that other person dies, then the drug supplier can be prosecuted for their death. It's a homicide offence. And what kind of length of time are those people facing if they're prosecuted? The maximum sentence is 20 years imprisonment. 20 years imprisonment, wow. And so, yeah, it's a long time. Mm -hmm. and, and this crime is the first um, of its kind to be introduced in Australia. So why has something like this been introduced in New South Wales, of all places? Well, as you said earlier, it was a knee-jerk reaction. So it seems that the government wanted to be seen as doing something in response to these two deaths. Uh, as many of your listeners will know, they introduced a range of responses. They include on-the-spot fines for drug possession, as well as some regulatory aspects for music festivals. Uh, when the three, um, the panel of three experts, and they were heads of government departments or agencies, recommended this particular law, they were actually explicitly told not to consider pill testing. So it was a very knee-jerk response. Mm. It's a punitive response, and it's not really a well-guided response. Mm. And we know that the New South Wales government could have introduced a Good Samaritan immunity clause alongside the crime, but didn't. What does this mean, and why do you think it was left out? Yes, so 
Uh, a good Samaritan immunity would basically mean that if there's a bystander and they fear that they could be prosecuted for this offence, they might have a likelihood to actually leave the person seeking experiencing distress from a drug overdose uh, instead of seeking medical help. So a good Samaritan immunity would offer that person immunity from prosecution if they immediately sought medical help for that other person. So basically it's aimed at decreasing the risk of harm or death of drug users. So they left it out. They didn't include it. And that question of why? Well, I think a big thing is that this was not offered up for broad consultation with criminal law experts. So I was not really aware of the terms of the bill until very late in the piece and far too late. It was enacted and rushed through at the end of 2018 with almost no consultation. So that's why uh, people weren't consulted. And if they were, we could have uh, given submissions on the US experience and said, actually, this might be really harmful. It might not help drug users. So can we talk about that? So what are your expectations? Like, how much consultation should the government have with experts, and how can that influence the legislation that goes through? Well, if we think about, for example, the current inquiry into sexual assault and consent in relation to sexual assault, that's a really good example. It's gone out to the New South Wales Law Reform Commission because it's a serious law, and criminal law is serious. And when we're making massive changes to the law, it should be expected that it does go to the New South Wales Law Reform Commission, that there's you know, months and months of consultation and experts are consulted just like is happening for that inquiry. This did not happen for this and it's a huge change to the law and experts should have been consulted. Mm, absolutely. You're listening to Backtrack Radio on 94.5 FM with Swetha Darf, Darst and Amber Schultz. Dr Elise Methven is a lecturer in law and a UTS Early Career Research Fellow and is speaking to us this morning about new drug laws introduced by the New South Wales Parliament. Now, you've discussed it a little bit. Can we, can we go a little bit more in depth? How have similar laws operated in the US and what can we learn from what's happened in the States? Yes. So since about 1989, when the US was pursuing its war on drugs, uh, a number of states introduced drug-induced homicide offences. Now, police in the US where these statutes exist tend to pursue quite low-level dealers as opposed to the major drug kingpins and traffickers that governments promised that um, this law would pursue. So it tends to be low-level drug dealers, bystanders, even fellow family members, um, a brother, for example, in one instance who supplied a drug to another brother that get charged for this offence. Mm. Um, so there are differences in, to the New South Wales law there, but it has been zealously prosecuted in the US. And as we see, there's actually a huge um, amount, there's an overdose crisis in the US. So it hasn't solved the drug overdose problem. So why do you think the New South Wales government is ignoring calls to introduce pill testing? Great question. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, the question on so many people's lips. I mean, this is one area where they said to the panel, do not consider pill testing in your inquiry, even though many submissions um, that were made in the very short inquiry uh, span said pill testing is important to consider. We need to consider all the evidence that's available to us and we need to consider harm minimisation and harm and drug education strategies as well. So um, I guess it's this idea that a zero tolerance approach would work. It hasn't worked so far, so why would it continue to work? And how worried should we be about this new crime? Is it easy to prove? Not necessarily. So the one, I guess 
huge difference between the US and here is that the person who supplied the drugs must have uh, known or ought reasonably to have known that they would be exposing another person to a significant risk of death. Now, that mental element, exposing someone to a significant risk of death and foresight of that, uh, that could be really hard to prove because how do you know, for example, what's in the drug, if the other person's taking a combination of drugs, what environment they're taking the drugs in? There are so many variables. So it might be difficult to prove and therefore hard to prosecute, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, it's a tenuous situation. Thank you so much for talking to us this morning, Elise. No worries, thanks. That was Dr Elise Methven, a lecturer in law and a UTS Early Career Research Fellow, and speaking to us, to us this morning about <laughs> new drug laws introduced by the New South Wales Parliament. Well, that's all we've got time for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Eden Faithful, Natalie Sekolovska and Pip Leeson. And thanks again to our wonderful guests, Dr. Elise Methvin, Irina Borgon and Andre Soltatov. We'll catch you next week. But before we do, we're going to play a track from Lana Del Rey's new album, Norman Effing Rockwell. That's right. Here's Doing Time. Catch you all next week. <laughs>